Everyone who has studied vicarious trauma talks about self-care as the antidote. Welcome to Live Well and Thrive, a podcast recognizing the hard work, dedication, and diversity of our team at Kaiser Permanente Northern California. I'm your host, Carrie Owen Pleats. We are absolutely delighted to have Dr. Butler with us today, a highly respected expert with over 30 years of experience. Currently, he serves as the Regional Director of Behavioral Health and Addiction Medicine at Kaiser Permanente. Today, we have a really deep topic. We're going to discuss third-party or vicarious trauma, something that's touched us all in different ways, be it through the news, stories shared by friends, or our own work experiences. It's been something I've wanted to talk about for probably a year and a half. A very timely topic, as we have just recognized the 22nd anniversary of 9-11, just a few short days ago. We'll chat about how this impacts our team of caregivers and explore practical strategies for healthcare professionals and all of us to support each other. Together, we'll learn how to strike a balance between providing the best care for our patients and protecting our own mental well-being. Let's warmly welcome Dr. Stuart Butler to our podcast, and thank you for joining us today, Stuart. Thank you, Carrie. All right, so we're going to jump right in and start things off. Can you help us understand what vicarious trauma is and how it touches our lives? Thank you. Yes, vicarious trauma, this is an area of increased investigation and research in psychology, actually. You weren't there. You didn't see it. Mm. You shouldn't be affected by it, but you are. It feels as though you were there because you've seen so many videos and firsthand accounts. It feels as though you saw it because every time you log into social media, turn on the news or browse the internet, the videos, the facts, the images are all there. It's as if you were there at the time that it actually happened and you carry that with you. Yeah, I think we can all relate to the images of 9-11 that are seared in my prefrontal cortex, as well as about the team in Maui. And there's so many just other examples. So Stuart, I'm thinking about our nurses, our physicians, our frontline staff. How does experiencing vicarious trauma at work uniquely impact them, say, compared to another tragedy we just hear about on the news? Well, professionally, we have a double-edged sword. Right. To be good at what we do, we have to be empathic. We have to empathically put yourself in your patient's shoes, right? Hearing and imagining what they're thinking, what they've been feeling, and what they're going through in that moment. You're affected by it because third-party or vicarious trauma is as real as could be. And you carry that with you, those images, even when you leave work. And you become preoccupied, which is one of the hazards that we'll talk a little bit more about. But that's part of the issue is that when you're a provider, when you're connected with people, you start to feel them. There's a permeable you know, membrane between providers and their patients. And we take it on. Our nurses do, our doctors do, our providers do. And that also makes us so incredibly great at what we do, right? That's the double-edged sword about it. The double-edged sword. So what are some signs that we might be experiencing third-party or vicarious trauma? And how is that different from just normal emotional struggles? That's a really good question. Third-party trauma or or vicarious trauma, as it's actually been most studied for those who work directly with victims of traumatic tragedies, such as psychotherapists, emergency room doctors and nurses, police, firefighters, and military, for example. 
But now more studies are coming out. This extends to all of us. We all are really very vulnerable to this issue. And symptoms of vicarious trauma may include an inability to discuss personal feelings, general irritability, a lack of enthusiasm for things that we're used to enjoy. You can't get patients off of our minds when we leave work after the traumatic circumstances they went through. It also may trigger those who have gone through traumatic events themselves in their own lives. Sometimes people talk about it as compassion fatigue. Mm -hmm. uh, you stop really hearing your patients. You can become numb, detached, emotionally exhausted, with a sense of reduced personal accomplishment. COVID tested us all. It's a good example of what we all went through. We hopelessly watched people suffer and some die, and we felt inadequate as professionals. That's one of the ways that we had to cope. And as professionals, we may feel we're not supposed to feel this way, and we try to hide the feelings or deaden them through, frankly, drugs and alcohol, which actually increased during the COVID. Right. Yeah, makes it worse. So Stuart, is drug use and alcohol abuse, is that a symptom of third party or vicarious trauma? It certainly can be, particularly for professionals and first responders. That's how some of them cope, right? They're trying to drive down the feelings, tough it out and work their way through it. And frankly, I think that is a risk. And it's also something that we should observe in our colleagues and friends. So you mentioned the personal experiences. I'm wondering if we could drop to personal level here. Would you mind maybe sharing on a personal experience with trauma and, and how did you manage it? Yeah, I have not been able to not have these kinds of feelings myself. You'll recall the Paradise Fire. Oh, yeah. I went up there after the fire to personally help as an emissary of Kaiser Mental Health. I spoke with the mental health providers and Red Cross officials who were there. I went to their converted building, turned into a disaster relief center. And you can imagine lineup of cots where people were staying with their animals. It was quite horrible for the people who were there. I walked through the various centers and spoke with some of the victims who lost everything. After I left, I could still smell the smoke, not only in the air, but in the clothes and the pets. Now, whenever there's a fire, like recently Maui, it takes me right back and I can visualize the faces of the people. So how did I deal with it? I really rely on my colleagues a lot. And when I came back from the Paradise area, I spoke to a number of people, including some of our providers who actually helped out during that time. We actually set up a call center for a lot of non-members who were living up there so they could talk with us about what was going on. That helped me. Giving back something seemed to help me yeah. cope with that, but that's how I dealt with it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your service to the individuals impacted by Paradise and what you went through and being a emissary of Kaiser Permanente. And my heart goes out to that smelling of smoke and how it just is an automatic trigger and it's not something that leaves you. And what you just did by sharing and talking about being open to listening, I think is, as you were mentioning, is a good self-care strategy. Recognizing that I think caregivers, at least in the past times, have been told just to suck it up, right? And maybe depending on the generation, our parents maybe told us that too. But actually recognizing that what you're going through is not your fault. Let's talk about yeah. it. So as you're talking about self-care strategies and talking to others, anything else you would share for people who are trying to stay resilient? Yeah, what you just said, I think is really important. Everyone who has studied vicarious trauma talks about self-care as the antidote to the vicarious trauma. And I have to say, one of the things that 
I often talk about is actually reducing your intake of the news. (laughs) So much comes to us, no matter the sense of urgency to learn more about what's going on, you need to really increase your sense of control. And what helps us feel more in control oftentimes is making sure that we're getting our sleep or, you know, taking walks in nature. Nature does an amazing thing for people. I mean, there's a lot of brain chemistry involved with seeing beautiful things, seeing a beautiful painting, anything that can sort of take you and ground you, exercising. And some people love to listen to music, even start singing. That takes us away, right? Maybe maybe not that. That might cause extra trauma if I do it. You're not going to sing for us, Carrie? All right. I do want to say, though, that, you know, some people are more vulnerable than others. You know, people who've gone through their own victimization in the past or trauma by seeing these events and hearing about it. And also people who are inexperienced in the field, that, you know, first job you had as a nurse or that first session that you're having at Kaiser. I often am recommending, and actually there's been some studies about creating a buddy system, particularly for new people who start out, someone you can talk to, someone who you can trust lay it on the line, disclose what you are, and can trust that they're going to keep it to themselves. I think that's a a really important thing that all of us can do to keep grounded and also to keep connected with other people. Talk to a trusted friend or counselor if you need to. Take regular breaks and time off if you need it. You know, that's one of the things we recommended for the ERs during COVID is get away for a second. You don't have to go one, two, three. Take that 30 seconds and take a walk outside and come back. The last thing I think is really important, and you mentioned it a little bit earlier, no, you aren't alone and there's nothing wrong with you as a person. You're just human, right? Just like the rest of us and you're vulnerable to these types of feelings. Right, yeah, and it's okay. It's okay to not be okay. And it's okay. So speaking of reducing your intake of news, I'm thinking a lot about the kids. Those impacted by so much that's going on social media. You know, there's Snapchat and TikTok and probably a few other ones that I have never heard of. <laughs> and not just they're consuming content in the news, but they're also interacting with their friends. Are there any tips that you would give us on just social media usage for the kids? Yeah, you're, you're right. The disturbing stories and images and videos, they may find it difficult to process and cope with distressing things from the outside, some stimuli. And you start to notice it with kids when they start talking in a way about their fears and anxiety. A lot of kids don't talk, right? They mm-hmm. behave, they act out. So mm-hmm. sometimes kids that will change and start becoming more aggressive, particularly younger ones, and, and then having sleeping problems and other difficulties. The younger the child, the more we need to really reduce the amount of time they actually have social media, which we're training kids to be more on the computer. I think we need to make sure that the younger ones were monitoring what they're seeing because children's developing brains are very vulnerable and malleable. The tips I think about are really talking to your children about upsetting world events. They see it in the media, they hear about it from others, and they need to talk about it at home. The main goal is to have the conversation, but to know your kid. So if your kid's starting to have behavioral problems and not sleeping, you know, that's a good time to lower the volume, right? That's a good time to step back a little bit, maybe not have so much social media, maybe not so much TV. You're not hiding. You're really trying to lower the volume. Yeah, lower it. And allow them the resilience to come back to the connection with the family. 
observing media in moderation and limiting the amount of time news media viewed by the kids as well. And if you notice concerning behavior, take them off. You can take a week break from social media. There's no harm in that. It's not going to kill the kids and it's, it's not, not going to kill you. It's not the end of the world, right? <laughs> it's, it's not the end of the world. And increase the number of positive activities that your family does. You know, watch a happy movie and read books. I have to say one thing to mention to you because it, it came up after the Michigan shootings, if you mm. remember at the University yeah. of Michigan. You know, there have been 225 school shootings in the last 10 years. Mm. Kids get scared about going to school. And I think that becomes an important thing to talk about the safety of the schools and yeah. making sure that your kids know that it's a safe place and that they're being taken care of because there's a lot of fear related to going to school now in ways in which that we hadn't thought about before. I certainly didn't think about it when I was growing up. I don't know how about you, but we didn't it was have not to something think about it. It wasn't, we didn't think about it. Yeah, different world. All the rest of them are on the news a lot and it comes up and the kids end up seeing it. Yeah. So I love your advice, especially for all the parents that are out there as to probably what we always do and always mean to do in some cases. Sometimes it's hard, but really pay attention, be thoughtful about the social media access. And if they do see something, don't shy away from it. Have that conversation. That's right. It's really an opportunity to bond yeah. with your kids and actually to know more about their inner life yeah, and who they're connected to and who they're talking to and where it's coming from. I think we can turn that kind of stress into an opportunity to really have more of a family connection. Yeah, and recognizing the emotions they're feeling are okay. That's right. Right, love that. So I started this podcast off by saying it was gonna be pretty deep. So <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm gonna try to lift this up just a little bit. Could you share maybe some heartwarming stories of hope and resilience in the mental health space that will inspire the team to just keep going? Well, remember, hope and resilience oftentimes comes with pain and sorrow. So yes. there's that is mixed in, right? During COVID, I actually did some work with an emergency room RN. She was a single mom and she had a special needs son. She had some choices to make. You know, school wasn't going. So the structure was gone. She was home. She had to make a decision. Am I going to go to work? Am I going to stay with my son? Am I going to take family leave? So she talked to some of her colleagues in the emergency department. Others were worried about their kids as well. And they came together. Several of the nurses teamed up. They hired a tutor and child care person, and they rotated houses for some time. And that worked. She came to work. She was much less worried about her kid and was able to manage that trauma of being in that situation because she was also worried about coming home and bringing home COVID. So this allowed them all to work together, talk about it, and also bond as a group. I love the spirit of our team. We have this wonderful, beautiful privilege of seeing just the phenomenal work of our caregivers. And it's been such a tough yeah. time during the pandemic. And you just see the inner strength uh, of the team and the teamwork. Mm -hmm. I have one other story. Yeah, please. A mental health story. Great. So, you know, one of the worst things in mental health is losing a patient to suicide. Mm. Providers go through such guilt and shame and fear about being criticized by their colleagues, despite having done everything they could and doing their best as providers. One case touched an entire department, a young girl who many people had known and worked with over the years. She'd been doing so well in the department, and we were so proud of how she was progressing. And she killed herself. The department was 
absolutely torn apart. In addition to working together and talking about it as a group, they actually reached out to the family and they had a team meeting and they grieved together and shared the sadness of the loss. They wrote a card and sent it to the family who later reached out and expressed their appreciation. Hearing that really helped them get through this, hearing that from the family and also being able to talk about those vulnerable feelings that people have, it really did help. And I was worried about some of the ones in the department, they were gonna quit the profession because they were so bothered by this. But the fact that they came together like that and connecting with the family and hearing back from them was really important. Yeah, you said it well, that you have to have the pain and suffering to have the hope and resilience. Reminds me of that statement that people have made is that out of the plague was born the Renaissance. So always looking for how the team coming together, the strength, the support of one another can just truly save lives. Exactly. We all have to turn tragedy into resilience. Yeah, we do. Well, this has been so incredibly helpful, Stuart, to me personally, and I know for so many others. Again, pretty deep topic, but thank you for keeping it real with us and making it something that is not something deserving of shame, but deserving of togetherness and hope. Thank you, Carrie, and thank you for supporting our mental health as an organization. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So I'd like to thank you, Dr. Butler, Regional Director of Behavioral Health and Addiction Medicine at Kaiser Permanente, opening our eyes and just incredibly helpful for our community and for our friends. Thank you so much again. Thank you. As always, I invite you to share what's on your mind. Ask a question or suggest a topic or guest. Send it to livewellandthrive at kp.org. And whether you're listening on your commute or during a down moment, keep those comments coming. And of course, I'd like to thank you, our listener, for tuning in to Live Well and Thrive, a podcast recognizing the hard work, the dedication, and the diversity of our team at Kaiser Permanente. I'm Carrie Owen-Pleats, and we'll see you next time.